And so we ended up putting this bird with white wing and it was like, like Jen said in the book, like a hammer hit us over the head. When, when, when he's young came out, we, we started flying. I mean, it was like, we've never flown birds like this before. This is ridiculous. You know, these things, they're the tamest things in the world. They have unbelievable appetites. Any rabbit they see, they just gonna, you know, just smash down to the ground and try to catch it. And, you know, with the, the drive. Yeah, they had the drive, the unbelievable attitude. drive, and just yeah. you no know, bad habits. It was like, wow, you know, and, you know, so that's been a breeding project. We started going, Wow, we, we put this gene, you know, with this bird, with this bird, we might get this, and off well, it went, and we kept expanding until it got out of hand. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast, and this is episode number 50, and it marks another really cool milestone for us. It's, uh, man, it's been surreal being able to, to continue to bring this production to you all, going on three years now, and over 50 episodes man it's been it's been a really cool experience been a lot of fun and we definitely wouldn't have been able to do it without everyone's continued interest support and kind words over the past few years so thank you again so very much and we hope to continue to be able to bring these to you for years to come and of course we'd also like to thank our wonderful sponsors who also help make the production possible being Marshall Radio Telemetry, the makers of the most carefully engineered and reliable tracking system available. For more information on Marshall Radio products, head to marshallradio.com. We'd also like to thank the Falconry Fund, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to support and protect the various arts and practices of falconry and the cultural and environmental assets that make it possible. The Falconry Fund seeks to become a vital and effective nonprofit charitable organization based in the United States to serve falconers on the North American continent and elsewhere so that this art and practice may be pursued without undue restriction and free from current or potential threats by incompatible human activity. If you'd like to find out more information or to donate to the Falconry Fund, head to falconryfund.org. And we'd also like to thank one of our newer sponsors being North Gen Raptors and whether you decide that you like to hunt with a dive-bombing falcon or a hot-off-the-glove, super-fast pursuit-style hawk like a goshawk, they just want you to know that they've got your falconry bird needs covered. So if you'd like to put down a deposit on a bird that's bred from very strong and diverse genetic lines, then go ahead and drop them an email at info at northgenfalcons.com or you can just head to their website at northgenfalcons.com and you can find out more information on the different types of birds they have to offer and just find out more information on their breeding project in general. And without further ado, I think it's probably just best to go ahead and jump straight into this 50th episode of the Falconry Told Podcast with the very cool and awesome Tom and Jen Colson. Here we go. So I am down here, back close to uh, New Orleans again. I um, got the privilege to come and hang out with with my friends, the uh, the Colsons, for a couple days. They had mercy on me and decided to <laughs> go ahead and let me come and, and hang out for a couple days after uh, one of my wonderful six day stretches in uh, in Lexington for work. And uh, yeah, it's been kind of cool just waking up and um, being able to come into a kind of a foyer and look out back and just see a. A ton of uh, hawks hanging out in the backyard and as like I told them last night it's uh it's kind of neat just being able to look out in your backyard and it's almost kind of like watching a, a fish tank you know in, in a way it's just kind of a uh, aesthetically pleasing and, and and chilling but uh how are you guys doing and um 
you know, I mean, what, what's what's the latest been with you guys here? Uh, I'm doing fine, and thanks for driving down. I can't believe you drove all the way down to talk to the likes of us, us but anyway, <laughs> here we are, you know. And, uh, yeah, this is our breeding season right now, and uh, things are getting a little hectic. Our first chick hatched, I think, uh, St. Patty's Day, and uh, everything's going well with it. We'll put it back in the nest tomorrow the next day, and then eggs are, you know, going as they go, and everything's go- looking good, and... Jen's, uh, we're following Jen's swallowtail kite right now. She does swallowtail kite research. One of her kites is trying to cross the Gulf of Mexico right now, but I'll let her talk about that. It's pretty interesting. We're a little bit worried about the weather, hope it makes it. But anyway, yeah, let me uh, let Jen explain that or what we're up to. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the kite is fitted with a GPS satellite transmitter, and we get reports on it uh, daily or uh, every two days. And in this case, he is... He launched off of the Yucatan uh, with really great south winds, strong south winds, and then met a cold front about two-thirds of the way across the Gulf with strong north winds, and he is now veering off course and heading towards the Florida Peninsula instead of Louisiana, and we're really hoping that he is able to make landfall, and we are biting our nails right now, <laughs> waiting to see whether he makes it or not. Yeah, it was it was really neat. Um, I had never actually gotten a chance to see, um, you know, some of the the tracking before, you know, with, with those GPS systems on Google Earth. So, I mean, and you showing me that just a little bit ago, it was, it was pretty neat to see just, you know, in, in that much depth and detail where they start, where they end up. And, and uh, you said you get updates, what, daily with that? It's, it's really every two days, but sometimes we... Yeah, sometimes we get updates in between, but yeah, so it provides a Latin long coordinate that's really accurate, and then the direction of the bird, the speed of the bird, the altitude of the bird, pretty incredible information. Yeah, yeah, well, out of curiosity then, why exactly kites? Like, what interested (laughs) you guys in doing the research for that particular species of bird? I don't think I've ever talked to you about that before. The swallowtail kite is a bird that very few people had studied. Its population crashed about 100 years ago, and its range really retracted dramatically. And it was a bird that Tom and I would go out to look for, and we couldn't even find Mm -hmm. one. So I was interested in doing a population study, and then I chose that as my bird for research. And also just seeing them. Like at one point, I think it was 1980. Four, that I had four of them migrating that f- flew over my house. This was, you know, when I was younger. And that really got me going, too. So Nice, nice. So it wasn't just uh, something just in particular. It was just, you know, ob- observing them, you know, when you were younger. And just uh, the kind of just, was it was it more the the fact that the numbers were tapered off so much? I mean, which, which factor was it more than the other, you think? I think that, well, first of all, they're absolutely gorgeous, but, you know, breathtakingly beautiful. But, but really it was that this bird is, has had such a dramatic population decline and reduction in range, and, and nobody, well, that's not true. But my colleagues in Florida were the only other people looking at this bird and trying to figure out what, what's going wrong and, and what can we do about it, so... Cool. Still asking those questions, by the way. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that's cool. I mean, that that kind of stuff does intrigue me because, I. Um, I mean, we did talk some last night when we were just kind of hanging out and, and chilling and stuff about kind of what goes into obtaining grants and um, you know how to go about even 
um, a- approaching and strategizing some towards those different ends of research. But what else? What other stuff research-wise have you guys done besides just the uh, the swallowtails and? We ha- well, in addition to the tracking study, we have long-term nest monitoring studies on swallowtail kites, and then uh, a bald eagle nest monitoring project. And I think I told you that we were worried about a nest that got blown down as you were uh, mm-hmm. planning your trip. Yeah. And uh, it turns out, though, that those babies were old enough that, that they were seen flying around. So fortunately, mm-hmm. we didn't have to get an airboat <laughs> out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many, how many years have you all been doing this? <laughs> the kite study started in, like in 1989. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. started falconry when? Fal- falconry in 65, if you call it falconry, what I was doing. But anyway, <laughs> I, I had a bird in 65, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, when did you start? In about I, well, 80s, I, yeah, mid-80s? I started yeah. working with Birds of Prey in, it, yeah. yeah, right out of high school. I graduated early, so it must have been like 1981, but then I didn't get my falconry permit until 1984. So. Okay. Well, and, and as far as your your um, you know your your breeding project, exactly how many birds do you have out back right now? Uh, in fact, it's yeah, I'm, I'm sorry you asked that, but no, I don't. It's actually, it's a good time to ask. It's the lowest number we've had in many many years. I'm just laughing because we used to have a neighbor back in the day when we had a little house in the, in the suburbs and. He would ask, how many birds do you have? And my answer was, not as many as we used to. It was kind of a good way of, <laughs> that, because they were pretty loud, you know. And, uh, but that was often not the truth. <laughs> it, it wasn't that the was truth, a... but it sounded good, you know. So anyway, right. now I can actually brag that we only have 24 Harris's, I believe, two on eight hawk eagles, and one great horned owl. Okay. And, we, and we use the horned owl for a little education and also to trap swallowtail kites. Okay. So he actually has a job. The only one that's you know, has to work. <laughs> yeah, geez. Well, I mean, it's 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 kind of interesting to think that that if you want to do the the quotation marks or whatever, that's downsizing. Yeah, it is <laughs> for, downsizing. Yeah. Wait, did you count the baby? No, I didn't Harrison? count the baby. I didn't count okay. the baby, and and more babies to come. I think. Well, I think we have nine hunting birds right now that are being fattened up, and then when the rest are breeders, we have six pair of breeders and. Uh, Things are rolling along fairly well right now, and anyway, but uh, it is that time of year where I was telling you a little while ago we'll be traveling around with these babies in a brooder, plugging them into this and that, batteries, <laughs> and we, well, Jen flies the airplane, and the airplane look for kites, and we'll take them in canoes and trucks, and they'll be all over the place, you know, because we keep them in a brooder for about five days until they get to about 90 grams, and kind of out of danger, basically. Then we put them back with the parents. So anyway, it's a kind of a time when... We're kind of like burning the candle at both ends, basically. <laughs> but it's kind like of it. always like way. But at least falconry season's over, so we have a little more time right now. Yeah, and you know, for the next few minutes, and then it hits the fan on on Monday, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I'm sure that since you all have done this for so many different years now, I'm, I'm sure you probably have this stuff kind of fine tuned down to a to an art almost. You know, as far as the efficiency and how to go about you know, uh, juggling all of the responsibilities and maintaining all this stuff with just your normal daily lives to some degree. I mean, I, I, I can understand to a certain degree also how it doesn't matter. There's always going to be a, a degree of, of chaos. <laughs> but, <laughs> when things go wrong, you know, when yeah, birds, birds get sick or something mm-hmm. that you just, you know, of course you can't anticipate that. Then then it yeah that well, really throws a wrench in the well, works. But, uh, but Tom has a system of feeding and getting food and feeding the babies and grinding up the food that yeah is super efficient like mm-hmm. to feed all those birds it takes you what 
Oh, 10 minutes to feed, th- you know, 30 birds, basically. <laughs> he also yeah. has, he's like Popeye, he's got the chopping arm, and he can, he's the best at chopping nutria in the yeah. whole world. The whole it's world. well yeah. known. Number yeah. one, number yeah. one. <laughs> That's awesome. It's good to be number one at something, you I'm know. Good at, I'm good at ice chest management also. Oh, yeah, I, I know how to is. thaw out meat. So I have I have very few skills, but I can thaw meat. I know just when it's going to thaw for what temperature, because I've only been doing this for 56 years, so I finally figured it out. <laughs> well, also for the kite study with some you know when we find kites that have been killed on the nest we're looking at the remains <clears throat> under the nest and i'll ask tom things like okay how long do you think this has been sitting out here how many hours old you know how many days old you know we sit there and we look at the size of the maggots and do a little forensic work and it's like well this isn't gonna kill kill anything if we feed it like you know still maybe today but tomorrow might be actually bad or so, yeah, so we're trying to like recreate like w- what predator was there when and how you know mm-hmm. also like how many days the nest yeah, survived for, a, for demographic reasons. Whether it was a snake, a raccoon, yeah. a horned owl, the weather, whatever. It's always some, it's a, a detective work. But I don't have the patience that Jen does. But Jen will be on her hands and knees lifting up every leaf, every little twig to find some evidence. And she almost always does. And I'm kind of embarrassed by it because I'm kind of like, <laughs> I'm tired of this. I want to do something. Just getting your nose up in there, just mm-hmm. using using every sense to try and figure the stuff Follow out. Follow ants and flies. And all. <laughs> yeah, sure. Everything. No, yeah. honestly. Yeah. yeah. Honestly. I found a lot of things that way. Yeah. Yeah. Found, right. found my transmitters that way too, with a little bit of meat attached to them, you know? It's, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That's uh well, I mean, if it's 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 cool that you have developed those skills over the years. I mean, I, uh, you know, skills. useless yeah. skills. <laughs> I, I'm 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 probably more in a in his camp as far as that. I wouldn't have the patience for that either. If I can't find it with, <laughs> if, right. I, if I can't find my transmitter with a with the receiver, then. Uh, I'm probably SOL, but but I guess that's that's what separates the uh, super vets from uh, yep, from yep. the semi newbies still, you know. <laughs> but uh, well, I mean, let's go back all those years. Then, I mean, uh, what initially? Uh, I you know, this is always kind of a, a thing that we always discuss in our in our podcasts with our guests, and you know, what was the initial interest for you then? Uh, you know, hmm. as far as you know, just what, what, what was the initial thing that piqued your interest with raptors? Uh, I guess I'll start first since I started first. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, I guess, well, I, I mean, I didn't start off raptors at all. I lived in the suburbs of New Orleans, pretty boring place. The houses were fairly new. There weren't many big trees. It was, you know, mockingbirds and sparrows and stallings. And, you know, it wasn't very exciting. But New Orleans is an odd place. We have drainage canals every few blocks. It, New Orleans, every drop of rain that drops that falls in New Orleans has to be pumped out over levees since we're way down you know the, the, the whole city's kind of underground basically under water level anyway so anyway so I would I would live in these canals as a kid with a scoop net catching crawfish and turtles and fish and then fishing later in the bigger canals and anyway so I was always outdoors and I loved loved all the things and I love birds too I got bird books as a kid from my from my parents which were great and I learned the local birds and but hawks were totally out of my league. We had no hawks in the neighborhood. Very, very boring. You know, now you go there, you have Mississippi kites, nests, and red shoulders. All the trees have grown up in that many years. But anyway, so try to get ahead now. And then, uh, so my dad hired this uh, young black guy named Jake Watson. And as a, as a tech, my dad's a scientist, was a scientist, and uh, he was in med tech. And my dad said, well, this, this fella, he's a really neat guy. He loves animals and birds, and he's got a hawk. He's, he's got a hawk. Oh, really? he got a hawk. Well, we can eat. Well, he says, you know, one day when, you know, when you're off school, you know, holiday, come, come, come by the lab, and you can see his hawk. He'll bring his hawk. I'll bring the hawk. 
So I get to the lab one day, and sure enough, Jake brought his hawk. And it was a Broadwing hawk, because I didn't know what a Broadwing hawk even was. And you know, it's like, oh, this is pretty cool. And, and Jake said, I can even fly it. I can even fly it 25 feet across the yard. And I went, 25 feet across the yard? I'm going to see this. <laughs> so sure enough, he did, you know. And I went, oh, that's pretty Cheap cool. Cheap parlor trick. And then, you know, at, at the time, I'm like 15 years old. So, you know, girls and this and that. And I kind of, you know, I didn't see Jake very often since I didn't go to my dad's work very often. So he kind of, you know, didn't worry about it. But then later on, you know, I'd see Jake again, and we'd talk hawks and this and that. And then he... So he didn't, uh, of course, he didn't know anything about falconry, so he went to the library and, and got some old English books for all that were available, these old English books on falconry, and of course, nothing to do with a broad wing or red tails or anything. It was all to do with peregrine falcons and, you know, whatnots. And, but we, you know, he read them and then handed them to me, and I read them, and we got kind of fascinated and fascinated. And then, you know, do you think we could hunt this thing? And then, I, but, you know, we never hunted it, and we tried. We, it was pretty inept. It was embarrassing looking back. But anyway, <laughs> so... Come about 1964, I'm still in high school, and Jake all of a sudden looks at, Field, I think, Field and Stream magazine. They had an ad in there about a NAFA meet in Elko, Nevada. I believe it was that year, pretty close. I mean, it might be a year off. So he, by himself, gets on a Greyhound bus from New Orleans, goes from New Orleans to Elko, Nevada, by himself, course without a hawk or anything he loved his broad wing home thank god you know <laughs> he laughed out of, the, out of the meat and everybody treated him wonderfully it took him you know it took him around showed him how to trap birds how to how to how to make a bc and jake saw all sort of neat neat falconry they didn't hunt much back in 64 but he saw a little bit of action he saw some wild raptors and told me about so seeing prairie falcons and all his exotic birds i mean a ferruginous hawk and i'm wow wow i'll get out the books and what's a ferruginous hawk and on we went so anyway he brings back all the plans for traps and stuff, you know. We go, oh, okay, now, now we got something. Cause, uh, and he also brought, he also ordered BB and Webster's book, the first one, '64, had just come out, but he ordered it there, and he came, about a, you know, a few weeks after he got back from the meet, which was at Thanksgiving. So right around January 1st or something, we we, we were building traps or anything else, and we trapped a kestrel right right there at work, you know, fairly quick, and I got the first kestrel, and then he got another one, and then then you know it was a pretty much a disaster I <laughs> and it was you, you, you kind of look back and it's all about husbandry and all you got to have a place to put these things you got to have the proper equipment and of course I was in way over my head but anyway I tried to train it and fooled around with it but finally I just either got a while when I was in it, it didn't it didn't matter it just it didn't work out I ended up letting it go and just kind of felt like a failure which I was and then Jake's Jake actually got his flying a little bit flying free but then one day he made a mistake. He probably had a little bit too high. And it was a little too windy. And he had on a red shirt, bright red shirt. Never forget that. And the Kestrel had never seen a red shirt before. And he saw that red shirt and just beelined it out of there. And that's the last we've ever seen of that Kestrel. <laughs> so I learned don't change your clothes in the middle of training, you know. <laughs> Keep everything, you know. Wear the same underwear yeah, pants. Yeah, exactly. Like exactly. for exactly. the first day you get a bird and then. I mean, I, really, to, to this day, I don't, I, don't, I, don't wear, I don't have sunglasses on. I mean, whatever I do, I do the same. I wear the same hat. I do whatever kind of bird it is. I just got in that habit. It's, it's worked pretty well. And uh, But anyway, real, real quick, I'll, so forward, so. Uh, then we went to a we went to a NAFA meet in 1970 in Yankton, South Dakota, and then I remember meeting a guy called I mean Alan Besky, still kind of a, an acquaintance of ours, great guy, and he had a red tail, and they were they were flying they they were all my age roughly well we were all about you know early 20s and uh, 
you know, it was when, when the Red Tails kind of came to the front. All these, these old timers, they all had peregrines and goshawks, everything out of Europe. They didn't even use American goshawks. They didn't use American peregrines. They imported everything from Europe. And, uh, and then we had the red tail hawks. And the red tail hawks were kind of looked look down on as the, the Ivory Tower people always do. And then, but the red tails were, were actually taking game. You know, I think one, I think Alan and them caught like six cottontails. And there wasn't a lot of game there, but he caught six cottontails during the meet. And I was really impressed. And uh, I met a bunch of new people. And all of a sudden I got home and I went, I can do this. I saw how they do it. I, they, I'm, I'm, you know, they aren't any better than me. I can figure this out. And within a couple of weeks, <laughs> I was catching rabbits, and you know, and then here we are today. It's gotten out of hand. You know? but, <laughs> but anyway, I wouldn't bore you anymore now. No, but that's no, how, that's how not boring at started. all. That's, yeah. that's what this is all about. I yeah, love hearing this yeah. stuff, and, and so does uh, everybody else. So yeah, and then you know, he went from you know this bird to that bird to this, and you know, he just kept getting out of more out of hand, and and of course, this is before any laws. So I would train. This is you know the laws came in in '76, so this is you know in the early '70s. So I'd, I'd train five red tails a year, you know, and keep keep one or two, and then just give, give myself experience. I needed experience, so I, that's the only way I got experience. And I I was off. I had a gray. I had a random amino acid analyzer at work. This big machine, complicated machine. It took up a whole room. But anyway, the samples came off from overnight at five o'clock in the morning. So I started work at five in the morning. And I got up at 1.30 in the afternoon, which was perfect for falconry. Mm. So I already had all my hunting boots. I had all my tidbits cut where I had everything. And so I was rolling. As soon as I got home, the birds were in the truck and off I went. You know, So it was a, it was a perfect job for falconry. Because I, I try to tell people, any apprentice or anybody, that's, it's all about time. If you don't have the time, I don't care how good you are, what birds you have, you just can't do it. Mm. And luckily, I had the right job. You know, and, and, and I kept that job for 30-something years, and it just made all the difference. You know. Yeah, out of curiosity, um, you know, you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned that amino acid machine, mm-hmm. like, and it being the size of the of the yes, yeah, that room, was yeah. that was also kind of in the age then, also with um, with the computers being so yep. big and yep. stuff. Yep. So also, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Oh God, it was a monster. I God, I, I still dream about it. It's been God. The last time I ran that thing was around two thousand, and I still dream about it. You know, because it was a, a bear, as they say. You know, you had to mix up. Just all these chemicals together, and all these buffers, and all the pHs had to be exactly right, and you know everything, and and radioactive stuff. We had carbon fourteen to deal with, so you had to be real careful with radioactivity, and on and on and went, you know. But I, yeah, it was it was a great life, you know. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Really. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So so you, your your career then kind of took off in the in the early seventies, and mm-hmm, you kind of mm-hmm, went from there. Mm-hmm. So so Jen, like what were you said you started more in the eighties. Ish. That's right. Is that what you said? Yeah, early okay. 80s. I had just uh, finished high school. I had graduated a year early because I, I don't know what my rush was. But anyway, <laughs> so it was, it was 81. And, and uh, my dad saw in the newspaper that you could volunteer for the Audubon Zoo to take care of injured hawks. And I was like, oh, that is me. So I kept calling the number and uh, nobody would ever return my call. So <laughs> finally, I talked to somebody and they're like, yeah, well, OK, we'll put your name on a list and whatever. So so then I kept calling back and saying, hey, I'll do anything. I mean, I'll cut up rats. I don't care. You know, just what I'll feed the hawks, whatever it is. You know, I really want to do this. And I learned later that it was all part of their screening process to make sure that they got people who weren't going to just, you know, right. show up for a couple of days and quit. But anyway, so they put me in the commissary of the zoo and they, they made me light candles scented candles while i cut up all the rats to feed the hawks <laughs> anyway uh so that was a great experience for me to um it's it's suddenly i was taken home 
baby screech owls and rearing them over the summertime and, you know, preparing them for release, that kind of stuff. But it's actually how I ended up meeting Tom. Uh, one of the first birds of prey that I took care of was a kestrel, and she had was recovering from a broken wing. And I didn't think she could fly well enough to make it in the wild. So I said, well, why don't you let me take this bird home and, and fool with it some and see how well it can fly. And so I ended up training it and uh, using Tom for a lot of advice. He was the falconer that was volunteering at the zoo. He and Toby Bradshaw that everybody turned to for advice. And so I was asking him things like, okay, if this bird is releasable, where do you think would be suitable release sites? How do I determine whether it can fly well enough? You know, that kind of stuff. But anyway, it, it was a haggard kestrel, and it ended up being a pretty tough bird to train, but it ended up also not being releasable. So I, uh, I got my falconry permit, and, and I, was kinda, I was encouraged by the rehab folks to do that. At the same time, I went out hunting with Tom a few times. I had never been hunting anything in my life. And I really liked, you know, having a biology background, just loving animals anyway. Like, uh, I knew, I was like, there's going to be a rabbit there. And I would go right there and flush a rabbit. I mean, like the first hunt I ever went on, I was like, oh, I love this, you know, being with birds of prey. I'm not really interested in other kinds of hunting, you know, it's just not my bag. But yeah. uh, hunting with a hawk, I discovered I really wanted to do. So I also, with that kestrel, uh, decided to get a propagation permit, and uh, so I bred her. I ended up putting together a, a pair of rehab kestrels and hatch. I had my little incubator at the foot of my bed and didn't get much sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Great, yeah. I bet not. I bet not. Well, I mean, you know, so, yeah, I, it's it's really interesting to to see how people come together and, you know, meet. And so, I mean, how often did you guys get out and hunt initially together then? Was it just a few times, or was it just kind of like as time went on, you guys started getting out more and more at the same time? Or, um, you know, like it did – how did how did your, your sponsorship end up end up working, like when you got your permit, or did they even really require that? <laughs> oh, that was that? a mess. Yeah, so, Tom, <laughs> so first of all, Tom sometimes took the volunteers from the zoo out on a couple of hunting mm -hmm, trips, mm -hmm. I guess, but – but at the time, you know, he was married with a kid and, you know, I didn't, I had a boyfriend and whatever. And so we weren't, we weren't a couple or anything. Yeah, yeah. He was just mm -hmm. an advisor and, but he, he was a really good teacher. And some of the things that I was learning from my friends at the zoo who weren't falconers kind of gave me not as good of advice for training birds. <laughs> but, uh, so I was quick to recognize that, um, lost the Wait, oh. Oh, oh about uh, how how often did we go out yeah so it it later on i think mm -hmm, maybe mm -hmm. we started I, I think what really changed things dramatically was uh i was uh i had a harrisock that got injured by another harrisock of breeders oh that's right i had a, a male that well no a female i think a female, a female yeah. was really 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 hurt i mean really i mean open wounds all over and this and that and of course i had a full-time job family and I knew Jen at the time was getting pretty good at rehab stuff, so I'm going, well, hey, if you can fix this female Harrisock adult, you know, she's a real valuable breeder, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one of her offspring. We want an offspring for one of my other birds, a male Harrisock, for doing this, you know. So sure enough, she fixed the thing up like a champ. You know, bird came out perfect, you know, so definitely, you know, held up my end of the bargain. She got a male Harrisock, and then all of a sudden, you know, then she wants to hunt it. Well, 
come with me and off we went and then that's where it really right. got rolling yeah that's with, right awesome yeah, yeah awesome yeah so i mean like did you did you go through um you know, since you started just a little bit later then, I mean, did you have to go through that a little bit more of a traditional, oh, yeah, the, you know, sponsorship? Right, sure. And, so hmm. I had to take the test and build facilities. And, you know, my my dad wasn't really much of a builder. So we had to build this mew. I got friends' <laughs> advice. and But, I mean, it all worked out. I had a, uh, a mew in the backyard and a weathering area and inspections. The inspection was interesting, but uh, <laughs> sometimes the agents don't know that much. But you know, but yeah. actually, he did point out a bad perch design. So, and mm. then uh, uh, my sponsor was supposed to be Tom, and so that's what I wrote on my paper. And Tom didn't realize, or or the agency thought that he had more apprentices on his permit than he did or he whatever, but yeah. they said that he didn't have space. So I, I get back in the mail that Eric Bienvenu is my sponsor, and I'm like, oh, great. I mean, he's a nice guy, but I wonder if they even talked to him, and they hadn't. So, <laughs> so I had to, like, I said, Tom, what do I do? Because Eric was a good friend, really close friend of Tom's. And he's like, well, just call him, you know, and I was like, here's the deal. Please Please don't think that I had anything. I had nothing to do with this. And he, and he's like, well, you're working with Tom. And he's like, well, I guess this will be okay, but I'd like you to check in with me. And he lived kind of farther away, too. Mm-hmm. But uh, really, he he was upset at first. He really was. But it wasn't anything to do with me. It was yeah. just that the state had it's done this. You know, yeah. yeah. Just Yeah, for anybody out there listening, most of you guys are pretty young. And Eric died in... Oh, I think 91, but he was an amazing artist, and his stuff's in the archives, and all his art, and his sculptures, and just an amazing friend, and an amazing artist, though. Just, oh, God, yeah. It's, it's stuff, we have stuff Por- in the house Porcelain right now. works. Porcelain, the- yeah, auto porcelain, these miniatures, and life-size Jeff Falcons, and he had shows over in, you know, Arab countries, and sending, you know, these life-size Jeff, you know, $10,000 birds over there, and just beautiful stuff, and we really miss him to this day, and... Every time I see his pieces, I'm kind of, you know, upset about it because uh, we kind of got started. In fact, I met him at the, he was in the Army. I met him at the uh, meet in Yankton, South Dakota, and I was amazed that he was from Louisiana. Again, he was in the Army at the time. He was stationed, I think, in Kentucky or something. But he had a, a lugger falcon, of all things. I don't think I've seen a <laughs> lugger yet. And, uh, you know, so that was pretty neat to see that, you know. But anyway, Eric, I, I miss him to this day. But anyway, yeah, go ahead, Jen. Yeah, he used the lost wax method for his porcelain. And his his porcelain mm-hmm. sculptures of Birds of Prey, they just come alive. Like, he really has <clears throat> that uh, had mm-hmm. that eye for, like, what mm-hmm. what makes the hawk look like the hawk or the falcon, you know. Nice. Well, I mean, it's... <clears throat> Like I said it's it's amazing, and we, we've talked about this before, and and you know with different people in previous episodes. But it really is amazing how many how many falconers are artists, musicians. You know, I mean, they they have kind of like the uh, except me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's Manny Caruso's picture right there of the golden eagle. Yeah. That's a gorgeous one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. True. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean, it's 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 really amazing just how many amazing you know artists of all different types there are in this you true, know true. in this uh you know this community and uh but yeah i mean it's as as far as um you know I, I, everyone I, everyone obviously knows you both you know for harris hawks you know i mean that that's that's kind of what you know you guys have have developed your your reputation on and and but i don't know if if very many people know you know what you all enjoy have enjoyed flying in the past aside from you know like the harris's what you know some of your you know other favorite 
species of birds that you've flown and, and, you know, just what your experiences have been with other species. And, you know, if there's any other type of bird that you, that you had to choose besides a Harris, you know, what, uh, like what you guys would actually prefer. Hmm. You know, one thing I want to start with on that is to say that our falconry changed dramatically after Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. So we lived in a different uh, town. We lived in a different place, you know. So we uh, moved to higher ground after Hurricane Katrina. We lost our place there. Had some traumatic experience leaving there, to say the the least. But but what it meant then was we were rebuilding. We lived in a new place. We had to travel farther to hunting spots. The game was gone, so we were making more trips to hunt out west somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it really, <clears throat> we used to hunt with at least like a kestrel or a merlin or a sharp shin mm-hmm. and, yep. and then a group of Harris hawks. So we always had some other things going on the side. And then, well, first of all, a lot of the, we lost our merlin fields, we lost our kestrel fields, you know, and our life just got to be where it was like, okay, you know, buy furniture, do, the, you know, and travel. So we, it's it's hard to do several different species mm-hmm. when you got a lot going on anyway. So, yeah, so I, guess, really I guess ch- if we had to pick a perfect world, I think I'd be still flying Merlins along with the Harris Hawks. Mm-hmm. I think Jen would probably agree mm-hmm. with that. Uh, but we lost all those Merlin spots, unfortunately. So we just, just haven't lost flown one, one in about 15 years year. now. We just uh, don't have and I, I And Jen flew a shop shin for five years and uh, really enjoyed that. And I flew in a whole lot of Cooper's Hawks. I had one for 10 years even, and, and, and let, let it go after flying it 10 years. Caught several thousand head with it probably, but, uh, but I flew a lot of precipiters, loved that in the day. But I, always, I was always over the top, kind of a, I'd fly a Merlin, a, a, a Cooper's Hawk, and a Harris Hawk all in the same day, all different places. I could do that. I could do all the way until dark. Of course, I lost my marriage probably from it and a few other things probably, you know. <laughs> and, wow. I, you know, had a weird life, but uh, I was about possessed and still am. So, but, I, but I had places <laughs> to hunt. And, again, that's how everything, again, hunting. And so, you know, now basically we still have a few Harris Hawk places left to hunt, but everything else is just, is just really hard. So, unfortunately, we don't fly any other species at the moment. But, you know, th- things could change. I'm still I'm looking at... I'm always I'm always scouting. That's another thing. I, there's not a day go by when I'm driving something and I'm scouting to hunt somewhere, hunt something, you know. And it's in my jeans. Anywhere we're driving, we're like, "What do you think about that spot?" Mm-hmm. You're like, "Yeah, I bet there are rabbits there, but we can't hunt them because mm-hmm. of that transformer." Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's yeah. Just you're always weird. looking, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's cool because I mean, I it, it's I, I you know we were talking about this some last <clears> night. You know, everybody kind of has those different developing tastes over time, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. those different preferences. And, you know, we had the Kestrel conversation, you know, I mean, if I, I mentioned it before, I mean, if, if someone came up to me and said, you know, you absolutely cannot fly anything else from now on besides, you know, say Kestrels, I'd be like, okay. You know, I mean, I, it would be mm-hmm. kind of a sure, bummer not sure. to be able to try new sure. stuff anymore, but at the same time, you know, I like them enough that, Oh, they're amazing. You know, that, mm-hmm. that I would be, you know, I'd find a way to be okay with that, you know, but yeah, I just I wasn't really sure, you know, what other um, you know types of, of stuff you guys really liked flying besides you know the obvious, uh, you know. <laughs> well, and I mean red-tailed hawks. Oh, red-tailed hawks! Fantastic hawks. And Tom has flown a number and, and then, of them. And I then haven't. On the other side of the coin, there was the you know we we obviously got our hand we got our hands on New Zealand falcons, bat falcons, ferruginous hawks, peregrine falcons, prairie falcons. We've flown all that stuff. It's like it's ridiculous. The energy we had and 
it's you know it's almost embarrassing to look back. What, what? How do we try to do all that at one time? You know? <laughs> well, we'll talk. And a we did. Bit. We we did. You know. And, <laughs> well, that's awesome though. I mean, if well, you guys, I guess. <laughs> if you, well, I mean, if you guys are able to do it, then you know, I mean, well, all the power to you. But I mean, talk a little bit then about some of those other species that nobody ever hears anything about. You know, like the like the bat falcons and the yeah, well, and uh, some of those other ones that you never see. I mean, since since we love merlins and you know uh, bat falcons kind of rough with the same size, same shape, hunts birds. You go, oh, this makes sense. And this is back in the day when they were actually breeding them in America. You could get one, and we, I think we actually were even given, somebody gave them to us. And uh, so, and we planned on breeding them, and so we wanted to fly them first. And, uh, but we found out pretty soon that uh, they, they, uh, they didn't want to come, come to the ground. So as long as the bird was flying, they'd whack it, say a dove going by, a whack a sparrow, whatever it was. And of course, the bird would fall to the ground, or you know, try to hide under a bush or something. And you could not get a bad bad falcon to come to the ground, even to a lure. It just didn't want to come to a lure on the ground. Yeah. And finally, you go, you know, is it just this bird? Well, we flew another one, and it's like the same thing. I mean, you could get them come to the ground, but you had to stall them to death basically just to get them to come to the ground. You go, what is wrong? What's wrong? What's going on here? And finally, it came to us. I mean, after her travels in Central America, observing them in the wild, well, they hunt over the rainforest. Mm-hmm. And if anything falls through the canopy, it's lost. In, in their mind, they, they could not go down under the canopy. That is death to them. Yeah. It's the same mentality a kestrel has when it catches something that's going to carry it to someplace safe. It just can't be on the ground very long. It's too, too little. So when, when, when a bat falcon does fly, it sits on its highest perch over the rainforest, goes out and catches a bird in the air, hopefully, brings it back. and brings it back <laughs> and eats it at its high perch. And that's what they wanted to do in falconry. And you go, well, this just can't work. I mean, I can't have it. If it does catch a bird, it's just going to bring it to the top of a tree or the top of a building <laughs> and eat it. And you go, yep. other than that, they're wonderful. They were easy to train. They were just sweet as can be, fast as lightning. But they just, again, they weren't made for falconry, you know, mm-hmm. in our experience anyway. Nobody else, I don't, as far as I know, nobody's really doing a whole lot with them anyway. Maybe really. if you had a telescoping pole that yeah, you there called you go, There you go, there you go, there you go, yeah, yeah. A yeah. portable radio tower, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah that's why. Well, yeah. I, I mean, what other what other kind of the more exotic species that you never hear anything about did you guys hmm. mess with or actually try and fly that you but, thought was was different or intriguing? <laughs> Go ahead, Jenny. <laughs> the New, but, but New Zealand falcon, yeah, yeah. that was the most uh, disappointing birds I think we've ever. <laughs> I almost hesitate talking about. You go ahead, Jen. Tell them, yeah. Well, yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> we we flew the mail. And he really had the build. He, the female looked like a falcon, and the mm. male looked to me like it was shaped more like a cooper's hawk. It was yeah, the most yeah. bizarre. I mean, narrow the, shoulders and kind of, yeah, just yeah. dimorphism that I've ever seen mm. because it wasn't just a size difference. It was like the whole the way the thing was put together. And we really thought, oh, yeah, we've got all these birds on the ground that we can hunt and really get pretty close up mm-hmm. to hawkable situations. Yeah. And I would throw that bird at the, at the, the <laughs> falcon at these birds as hard as I could at some point. You know, we tried all kinds of baggies, and we really, really, really did not catch a thing no, with not that, a thing. not a single it was thing. And we presented that bird with so many opportunities. So it may have just been 
an inferior individual for some reason. Maybe it maybe it was blind. I felt inferior maybe it was blind and we didn't realize it. But we we presented that bird with an amazing, yep, amazing yep, array yep. of opportunities. So I'm not sure. But of course I mean like we love watching Nick Fox's videos of the hybrid. Hybrid, that it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spitfire, yeah, yeah. Spitty, you know, it was just an amazing bird. And what happened that were kind of sold as as the greatest thing since sliced bread, it was half a sipiter and half falcon was the deal when they would they actually this goes again most people the males were, were the sippers and the females yeah, were and this is back in the 90s and all of a sudden you know we're probably, it would be in bread here and it was going to be the greatest thing again and then you know they ended up in a bunch of people's hands and nobody really did anything with them much i mean people caught a few head here and there but nothing to write home about in course and now you know i don't think you can even find one in america you know but it was they were they were seeing it you know napa meats and this and that but again i, I think you know any kind of successful bird always rises to the, to the top eventually. I mean, if they take game over and over, you know, yeah. they, they rise to the top and people start flying them and they've, they've disappeared. I think that's all you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't see them anymore. Yeah. 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 There's, I mean, there's usually something to be said for. Yeah. For well, that. and it's a raptor that grew up on an island, a large island, yeah, albeit, and a lot of the animals that they hunt are flightless. Flightless or, you birds. Know. That's what we need to flightless yeah. birds. You know? Yeah. Well, that, that makes sense. I mean, I, you don't see them much. I mean, there's a couple of people that consistently you see, you know, mm-hmm. post stuff about it mm-hmm. or whatever. But I mm-hmm. mean, but yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's always that intrigue <clears throat> with those with those species that you never <clears throat> see much about or hear much about or well, that you know, was whatever, the Harrisock. That was the Harrisock. You know, exactly, yeah, you exactly, go back far so. enough. That was uh, yeah, exactly the same thing. And and I guess the other one that people would be uh, intrigued about, but just kind of didn't work out, is the ornate hawk eagles. We We've been having one eight hawk eagles for probably twenty five years, or maybe more. You know, no, maybe more, maybe thirty years now. And uh, a couple pairs we used to breed them. And so the ones we bred, we uh, we wanted to. You know, we're always interested in hunting first, so we uh, you know got these on eights and you know went to our rabbit fields and flushed rabbits and bagged them. And, and you go, what's what is wrong with these things? They just they're like owl, like they're, they they don't react like a. You know, Harris Hawk sees a flash of fur, a feather, it's off at a flash. Mm-hmm. These hawk eagles just kind of take that time and plodding along. And, and again, they can hunt in simple situations, anything complicated, you know, really, really mess with their IQ, you could tell. And the other thing that would just destroy us is that everyone we have, I think we trained two, three, everyone was afraid of other birds flying over them. I mean, in Louisiana, we have just thousands of egrets and herons and cormorants and you know, other raptors. So any bird that flew over, I mean, a harmless bird fly over them. The bird would just shut down all of them, just be afraid. Monty's sometimes afraid when a dove flies over. A dove flew over, over. yeah. Wow. Well, a male only hawk be afraid of a dove. And you go, what in the world is going on? And so, <laughs> you know, after a few weeks of this, you know, you just go, I, I can't deal with this anymore. And, but again, if you give us a, a simple situation like hunting in, in a desert, you know, where, where a jackrabbit gets up or a cocktail in front of you, and there's no complications, there's no heavy shrubbery to hide behind. They definitely could hunt. They have all the tools. Oh, they're well, very fast. Very fast, and very you know, powerful strong, legs, powerful. Very powerful feet, yeah. yeah. They have all the equipment, except the mentality is not that. And people, I think people... It's more know, owl-like. Yeah, more owl-like. They look at every old raptors as a beauty contest, and they, they definitely tops in a beauty contest, but... Again, they're not as if, if they're not going to take over the falconry world. I predict that they're not going to be the next Harris hawk or the next goshawk or red tail even. Not at all. But again, hey, I hope I'm wrong. You know, I wouldn't mind. Yeah, it the a bit. problem is here we don't have <clears throat> much of a hawk off the glove, easy 
Mm-hmm. We don't have easy mm-hmm. rabbits here, right. so mm-hmm. you know, not like you know some of the desert yeah. areas, right? Right, and maybe I think that I mean they're very like especially the males very fast and agile, mm-hmm. and I said I think they would do well on ducks and stuff as long as you could get over their fear of maybe they're not afraid <laughs> of. I never did try to hunt birds with them, so maybe they would do all yeah, right with yeah, that. Yeah. I mean they obviously hunt birds in the wild, so yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean you would hope that. <laughs> yeah, if if a dove was flying over it and it was scared, you would hope that you know a duck flying up out of a ditch or something like that, it wouldn't wouldn't yeah. freak it out. Yeah, but maybe yeah. it's the overhead know. thing. Maybe they're used to being dominant. Yeah, you know. But I I mm. have had some conversations with Freddie Palinger, the artist and falconer in Brazil, and he's flown some and known people that flew some, and he says, you know, this is a bird that just really takes a lot of patience. Their development is slow. And their learning process is generally slow. So, you know, I'm used to training things that learn a little quicker. So you just have to, and apparently maybe bagging them a whole lot, you know, dragging Mm -hmm. things a lot, those kind of, you know, fake prey to real Mm -hmm. prey transitions. I do remember saying, if I got to bag this thing one more time, I'm going to kill it. (laughs) (laughs) How many rabbits? Yeah, we're not used to doing much on the baggy front, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, whenever you're used to something that's a little higher IQ, you know, like, like the the good old Harris Hawks, mm. you know, it's uh, I can see where it would be frustrating to go to Very. something that that's going to take multiple years to develop. And, but, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I guess it all just depends on, you know, where your dedication is to the time and, and how, um, you know, just how much time you really want that's to give right. something. Yeah. Right. And we're, right. when we've got nine or 10 other Hawks that we're yeah. training, then well. to put that much time and effort, which we, we really did, mm-hmm. For for uh, Maya, for example, mm. put a lot of time and effort into training her. Surprisingly, for us, yeah. <laughs> and we even had a spot that was like if the rabbit would go behind a tuft of grass, that she would just yeah, like veer off, like oh, it disappeared magically. You know, just wow. not really what you were expecting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's nuts. Well, I mean, that's in, like I said. I mean, I I love hearing about some of these other species that not very many people have flown or will ever fly or you know have. You know, I mean, it's it's yeah. Like I said, I mean, it it's it's always cool. Um, you just you just don't see that stuff very well. Often, it made me know? think more about their biology in the wild and their mm-hmm. hunting under a lot of dark. They have very owl-like, forward-facing eyes. You know, mm-hmm. and they are hunting a lot in low light. Uh, they're under the canopy, under so, the canopy, and I you think know, they have a lot of time to think about things. I think they're surprising things in the low which light, which is more of an owl-like they're, situation. They're not, they're not a reaction bird like a, you know, a, a goose or you know, Harris hawk. They just kind of, you know, bob their head more owl-like, like Jen said, more you know, bob their head around, looking, think, thinking about things. And then but once they're off, they're off. But it's, it takes a while to get to all those nerve endings that are <laughs> going. You know? Yeah, Jerry Oswinkle was catching jacks with him, mm-hmm. you know, in, but, in Arizona back yeah, in the day. Yeah. yeah, but again, it was simple stuff. You know, you know, bleak, bleak desert with rabbits getting up in front of you, and you go, I can see that working. You know, yeah. But does, does it work better than the Harris or a Goss? I don't. think I'd so. I'd still yeah. like to play around with them some, yeah. but uh, it's kind of a when your <clears> truck <throat> is already filled up with. Yeah. <laughs> Nine or ten Harris Hawks. Right. Where, where does the ornate go in the big, you know? Mm-hmm. And so really having to travel so much is what's kept me from. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't travel with, near near as well as the Harris's do. That yeah. was the other thing. And also having the space. I mean, mm-hmm. we'd have to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just have to have to buy a, cargo a different. Van. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> just, just stop, and then stop, sometimes stop. it's better to be limited by space, too, you know. 
Hey everyone, I just wanted to kind of jump in here and interject for a minute since we're getting ready to get into the Harris Hawk part of the conversation. And on the Colson's behalf, I wanted to remind everyone of the existence of the Baywing database, which is the international registry for Harris Hawks, and it's modeled on registries uh, for breeds of horses and dogs. It's a repository for hawk pedigrees and documents and legitimizes the Harris Hawk captive breeding program and helps preserve our falconry heritage. So they wanted everyone to know that every falconer and breeder working with Harris Hawks can participate. So if you wanna either discover your hawk's ancestry or register your Harris, you can do it today at baywingdatabase.com. All right, let's get back to it. Here we go. Going back then, uh, I guess this would be as good as time as any to, to transition to the whole discussion of, uh, you know, what brought on the just the, the passion with the Harrises then and what, what hmm. spawned all that and what made you guys decide to start such a... Um, an in-depth breeding project with them and, and do the whole, uh, you know, the, the database and, and, you know, really just go this in depth with this particular species. Yeah. Well, it, uh, goes up all back to the seventies again, I guess about 70, I think Harry's book, Desert Hawking two came out. Harry, in seven, McElroy. Harry McElroy. Desert Hawking two came out in 76, I believe. And I got that book immediately and it was about half the book was on Harris Hawks and the other half on Cooper's Hawks. But anyway, the Harris Hawk really intrigued me. And I started reading about it, reading about it. And I went, wow, wow. Maybe, of course, I was flying red tails at the time in Merlins, I believe, and Coops. And uh, I said, well, God, you know, Harris Hawk. And uh, at the time, I was losing a lot of my fields that red tails thrived in. And uh, I was thinking, well, these Harris Hawks, you know, maybe they could adapt. It pretty, sounds like they're pretty intelligent and this and that. And so anyway, I ended up acquiring a Passage Harris Hawk in 78. And, uh, you know, it, was, uh, it wasn't a Bass Harris Hawk hindsight, but it was pretty, I trained it like a red tail. And, you know, flew it to a lure and, you know, caught plenty of rabbits, lots of rabbits with it. And friends, all of my friends from Baton Rouge, other hawkers, they started watching. Of course, we had to fly, I had to fly it alone because it couldn't fly with the red tails. I didn't want to try that. So... But, but it would catch three three rabbits every time out, three big swamp rabbits, and we'd fly to red tails. And again, we kept losing our hunting spots. And then one day, this uh, the, Harris, I mean, the red tails wouldn't fly in the woods. We ended up having a lot of wood spots, which were kind of half squirrels, half rabbits. And the red tails would just kind of shun away from these dark woods. It was giant oak trees, really dark, kind of a kind of like a rainforest-looking place. But that Harris Hawk would just fly right into those woods and just, you know, start hunting squirrels, rabbits, whatever. And I go, wow, that's that's pretty neat. And then all of a sudden, you know, then we were kind of like thinking, well, we, I think we need another one of these. And sure enough, a friend brought one from Arizona and I got that one. And I kind of acquired another one here, there. And, you know, so I ended up having two or three flying them. And sure enough, we started hunting in the woods and they just took to it like a duck to water. I mean, all of a sudden, we, we had, they were waiting 80 feet over my head, flying through the canopy, follow me everywhere I go. And, and the, the interesting thing is like these bottomland hardwood forests, <clears throat> they're not places where you would ever find a wild Harris no, hawk. No, oh no, wild Harris hawks would shut it. I don't really understand why it's they took to it. quite surprising, yeah. And they did, and uh, so then, then we go, okay, well, so this fits a first bird I call it a star for the, for the star of Texas, I guess, where I got her. And so I wanted to breed. So this was in 80, 1980, I put, I put a bird from Arizona male with her in a breeding project. And in 81, I got eggs, and she, you know, I left them alone naturally. They hatched one chick out of three eggs, had a big party at the house. I mean, all my friends, all my biology friends, and Toby Bradshaw was there, and 
Open a bottle Probably of Mike Braun. Yeah, Mike Braun, famous. Open, open a bottle of champagne. I got the ladder out. Let's let's go look at this little chick. Put the ladder up. Chick was gone. The parents had eaten it. <laughs> <laughs> so the party kind of kind of fizzled after that. <laughs> so so I'm going. Toby and I went. That's not going to happen again. We got to buy incubators. We got to figure out. You know, we just can't leave it up to the parents. So we got these cheap incubators, and you know, all of, we didn't have much money in this and that. But we kind of learned how to use them. And next year we got seven eggs, I believe, until we got two or three of them. I got three or four of them, whatever. And we ended up hatching, I think, three or four chicks. And of course, we raised them all wrong. And you know, didn't didn't want didn't, didn't trust the parents to raise them. So we ended up raising them basically in a group in a mew and. They turned out half imprinted, half this, half that, and fought with each other and, you know, attacked dogs and all the bad habits. But we, we were learning, you know, it was, it was growing pains. And so after a, a couple of years of that, we ended up having the parents raising them, and, and here we are today. But, but then Jen came in, like, say, right after that, in the early, I guess, yeah, early 80s, you got your mm-hmm. first hair, so like that male I was mm-hmm. talking about earlier. And yeah, and then we like say Brie, and then Jen. I think I got him in '83. But okay, makes sense. Yeah, and then uh, that's when the breeder project really started going. I put White Wing up that bird, White Wing. I had a passage bird, White Wing, who got hurt by a cat. You know, grabbed a cat, got a wing. I saw a wing turn white, and so put her up for breeding. And then uh, that's when Jen came along, and Jen was a great record keeper, and she had everything organized, all the paperwork, all the the genealogy of everybody. So we really started getting serious. And then just by happen chance, I ended up getting a mail from Malcolm Edwards, this big, big Arizona male from, from a famous breeding project. He was one of the earliest ones uh, breeding in Georgia. And so we ended up putting this bird with white wing. And it was like, like Jen said in the book, like a hammer hit us over the head. When, when, when he's young came out, we, we started flying him. It was like, we've never flown birds like this before. This is ridiculous. You know, these things... They're the tamest things in the world. They have unbelievable appetites. Any rabbit they see, they're just going to, you know, just smash down to the ground and try to catch it. And, you know, with the drive. Yeah, they had the drive, the unbelievable attitude. drive, and just yeah. you no know, bad habits. It was like, wow, you know, you know, you know. So that's when the breeding project, we started going, wow, if we, we, we put this genes, you know, with this bird, with this bird, we might get this. And off well, it went, and we kept expanding until it got out of hand. And, and anyway, and, and here and we are today. Ha- you know? having Toby Bradshaw's input as a yeah. geneticist, too, mm-hmm, was mm-hmm, awesome. Mm-hmm. Nice. And still is. Yeah. And in 1984, Toby moved to uh, Seattle. He brought some of the birds, for, you know, our birds, to Seattle, and he started a breeding project. So then we started swapping genes. So he, he'd be flying on jackrabbits and stuff in Oregon and this and that. And, we, and I'd give him birds. He'd give me birds back. And we started, you know, what, what, do you, what, what do you think of this bloodline? What do you think of that? And, and you know, Jen would fly birds and friends would fly birds. We put, that was our other thing. We try to put birds in good people's hands. We still try to. It's pretty hard to do, but we try to find good falconers that take the birds that give us a good feedback on how the birds are going to do. Because mm-hmm. I don't want to breed, obviously, bad birds. So if the birds keep coming out, great, we're going to breed. If not, you know, we're not going to breed them again. So it just kept growing, growing, growing like that until now it's kind of turned into a little cottage industry, I guess, here at home, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, keep, I keep hearing a... Uh... A recurring theme in this conversation with the words uh, "out of control" being being yeah, mentioned a lot. Out of control, lot. out of control. Yes, yes, yeah. Out yeah, of control. People think it's ideal, you know, a match made in heaven that both the wife and the husband are falconers. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, who's gonna? Who's yeah, who, gonna... who goes shopping? Jen doesn't want to shop. I don't want to shop. Who buys clothes? I don't want to buy clothes. She doesn't want to buy clothes. You know, yeah. all we want to do is take care of birds. So basically. 
you know, we kind of, you know, everything's kind of Spartan. We don't have the fanciest furniture or clothes or anything, but it doesn't matter. We don't really care. Yeah, who fixes the leak? Who yeah, does who, it? Yeah, yeah, who has to fix things? We don't want to fix anything. No, no, no. Well, it seemed, but I mean, yeah, like you said, it doesn't really matter, though, because you guys both seem like you are really continuing to year in and year out, just enjoy life. Yeah, know? oh, yeah, and, yeah, you definitely. Know, just really yeah, enjoy, yeah. you know, what you guys have built. True. And, um, you know, I mean, it's it's awesome. I mean, that's all anybody can really ask for. True, true. Right. Well, you could say like, in the end, will they remember that she fixed the sink? But <laughs> hey, have you fixed but, the sink? I don't know. No, but <laughs> but at some point, the sink does need to be fixed. You know? Yeah, it's very true. <laughs> Before it floods the whole kitchen, you know, yeah. for example. That's very true. Well, luckily, there's 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 numbers and places you can call to, that's true. to, that's to, to right. have that done for you. You might have to sacrifice. But then you got to stay home. Yeah, while I was getting ready. Yeah. The sink. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, then you gotta kind of, you know, sacrifice an afternoon or whatever, mm-hmm, you know. Just, mm-hmm. you know, I know, God it's forbid. A dilemma. Yeah, it's a it's dilemma. A dilemma. God right. forbid you don't get out for one day or one afternoon no, or no. whatever. But well, I mean, I mean, it sounds like you know, like you said, you guys, you know, continue to have a great thing going on. Um, you know, I mean, do you guys continue to to foresee, you know, uh, doing the the breeding project well into the future? Is it something that you eventually think that? You know, you you may end up having to, you know, give up at some point. I mean, I, yeah, there's, yeah. it seems like more and more and more and more people are, you know, just not able to to continue to maintain, you know, these things, you know, long term. Or there's so many people getting, you know, getting out of it. I mean, what are you, uh, what are you guys' plans for the future with it? Yeah, well. I'm I can't getting, see us yeah. giving it up. No, I'm not going to give it up, but I'm getting, but I mean, I'm getting on in back. years and I'd sure like to. I would like to see the next generation grab the ball and run with it. And I'm not really seeing it as far as the – I'm seeing a breed Harris Hawks and all kind of other raptors, but they just they just kind of put a pair. Well, this is this is a story of about half the, the birds out there breath, whether it's a goss or a peregrine falcon or a Harris Hawk. They just go, oh, this bird, it doesn't do all that well with falconry. Let's breed it. <laughs> That's what pe- half the people are doing. They go, this bird fights. Let's breed it. I mean, and so it just upsets us to, to no end to hear these kind of stories. And, of course, they end up getting whatever they get. And and so I would love to have somebody come along that really has a, a desire. And, and there's a few people out there I have in mind, but I'm not sure that's going to last. And so I do worry, worry about that. I worry about the future as far as c- keeping the standards up and, and improving on them. I mean, hey, we're, we're always learning ourselves, you know, always trying to get better. And uh, I hope that the next generation of falconers <clears throat> is going to be more open to actually tracking pedigrees mm-hmm. of all the birds of prey that are bred in captivity, not just <clears throat> Harris hawks, doing a better job of tracking what we have in Harris hawks now. <clears throat> I think it's important for a couple of reasons. I mean, it's important for obvious reasons, like why would you, if you have a, a, a problem in your gene line, like why would you not want to know that and avoid it? I mean, that would be, you know, if you've got a deleterious allele, you've got so, so that would be the main, that would be one reason. And then another reason would be that you're seeing some things that you really want in falconry and you want to perpetuate that. That would be another reason to track it. And a lot of people are very resistant to that. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a very strange prejudice to me. Yeah. But, it, but it, I'm just telling same, you that it's the same it, human yeah. being that'll spend $2,000 on a hunting dog. That was bred all the right ways, but they won't spend a dollar on a hawk. You know, oh, passage birds are all great. No, they're not all great. It's a it's a crapshoot. I don't <laughs> want a crapshoot. I want I don't want to put a trap out and get a fifty percent odds of a good bird. Yeah. I want ninety percent at least. You know, and that's the point of captive breeding. Well, really. and yeah. when I said that I have some hope for the future, I always say 
rather, I'm a cat person, so I always say, America's gone to the dogs. Well, who, who do you know that doesn't have at least one to five dogs now, right? I mean, we don't, but, but we have a couple of cats. But, but Harris Hawks are a little bit more dog-like. You know, people maybe understand in dogs what breeding has done. So I hope that some of the future falconers will have more respect for selective breeding. Mm -hmm. Anytime you're breeding something in captivity, you are doing artificial selection. Just the birds that you captured from the wild, thats you were able to capture them, that's one level of selection. The birds that survived mm. in captivity, that's another level of selection. The birds that were comfortable enough to breed in captivity, that's another level of selection. Humans are already doing artificial selection. Why not make it more informed? Sure. You know, and possibly well directed. Yeah. But, but then I also don't, you know, I'm not interested in like, oh, let's try to make white Harris hawks and let's, you know, to me, it has to have a falconry purpose. And, yeah. and, uh, and I'm also not interested in doing some really hard selection because, you know, we, Toby has seen some problems with that, like, you know, genetic <coughs> issues. So, yeah. Yeah. And again, I'm just a, you know, what Jen was saying, everything for us is focused on the hunt. Every bird we breed or every kind of, you know, pair we put together, it's all about catching more game and having a better hunting bird. It's nothing... People kind of get this weird thing, like you're going to make something a docile animal, like a pet, and this. No, no, we're going just the opposite. We want something bloodthirsty. You know, <laughs> we'd like just, it to also be easy to handle. Yeah, yeah. we want I mean, it easy to handle. We right? want yeah. all, all the good yeah. falconry traits, but above all, we want that killer instinct. We want it to attack. You know, anything that moves. And again, that's that's what we're looking for. And and believe it or not, not all passage birds have that. Because guess what? Seventy-five percent of passage birds die in their first year. What right. what is that telling you? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> they aren't perfect either. You know. True. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's there's a, you know, that whole natural selection thing. You know, it, it exists for <clears throat> a reason. You know, yeah. and, and yeah. I I understand the the point of view <clears throat> of wanting to, kind of continue that mindset even with even with the captive you know captive breeding you know mentality and stuff. It's just like you, you know, you you only want to. You know, put those other lines, you know, going to the future that are going to be the most productive because that's what happens in the wild. And, you know, I, mm -hmm. totally, I totally get right. it. Yeah. But, well, I mean, so, I mean, just out of curiosity, then this is always usually one of the harder questions that are one of the hardest, uh -oh. uh, you know, conversation pieces that that's discussed. But, you know, because everybody can think of a million of them up until the point that they're asked what their favorite story is and what their oh. favorite hunting instance is or what their favorite bird is. But, Pick a pick a couple of uh, instances or, or stories that have been some of your your favorites, uh, you know, in, in all the years that you've uh, <laughs> that you've been doing this, and go. <laughs> wow, wow, favorite story. God, I've got some horrible. I don't know. You you went on the horror Isn't side. Isn't it funny the... that you mostly remember, I remember the, the stories, stories where things yeah. go wrong? Well, usually those are the most impressionable. <laughs> but yeah. you know, well, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I found we found four dead bodies while we've been hunting. I mean, I don't want. <laughs> Do I want to delve no, into that too deeply? Maybe, maybe, maybe wow. not. Maybe not for today. You know. Yeah, and that, uh, that that is a story that takes. That could be a whole. That podcast could be a whole podcast right yeah. there yeah. on the bodies. Yeah. And, well, that uh, might be a special edition, right yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Um, whoa, wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Well, I was just. I was thinking. I was just thinking of one. It's, it's a simple story, but I was just thinking of one last night by accident. I don't know why we were talking about hunting or something. Or I remember when one of my. I remember flying the old uh, bird white wing uh, back in New Orleans East in a, in a swamp on the edge of a swamp. And I was hunting rabbits, and I had two hawks up. I remember I was by myself, and and it, the swamp was just covered with duckweed. And there was a bunch of wood ducks out there. All of a sudden, we come across this, this little flock of wood ducks. And White Wing goes, oh, man, you know, wood ducks. He loved hunting ducks like that. And the water was about two feet deep, maybe. 
And so these wood duck, beautiful male wood duck, just jump right, right up in front of my feet, went straight up through the trees. White wing, you know, leaves approach, takes her right out of the air, right in front of me. You know, she's 30 feet over my head, and she floats down with this wood duck right into the water. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got, I've never caught a drake wood duck before. This is, this is going to be awesome. And so, you know, she's floating on top of the water, her feet are under the water, and her feet are moving around. You know, she's got the duck, and I grab her by the wings, and I pick her up. And she's got this big piece of white styrofoam. That's it. You know, a big piece of styrofoam. And I look about 20 feet away, and there's the wood duck with its head popping up. <laughs> Heading for Canada. You know, it was off, you know. Uh, and I'm going, how did this ever happen? I don't know. What. I saw her take the wood duck. I saw the wood duck come down to the water. I saw her under the water fighting with it. Wow. And, and how she ended up with this piece, of course, the water was full of trash. Being, you know, eating New Orleans Easter. It was around a dump, a landfill. So when I picked that thing up and saw that styrofoam, you know, I must have had the oddest look on my face. And to this day, I know if I still haven't figured out what happened. <laughs> wow. But, but I've you know, lots of more stories like that. But that's that's an easy, funny one anyway. Yeah. Go ahead, Jen. What you got? Um, I was thinking that we were in Lee in the middle of nowhere in Lee County, New Mexico, like no town around mm-hmm. or anywhere, and we were hunting with. <clears throat> I think we just each had a Harris Hawk apiece, you know, because we're often hunting with a group instead. But this was kind of really open habitat. And it was a couple of years ago where the jacks were really, really up in that area. And I was flying Callie, and I can't remember who you had, Mm -hmm. but we had some, we were jumping a few jacks and the hawks had missed, the hawks had missed. And then all of a sudden we had a flight that just kept they flushed a rabbit and kept missing it and they kept we were too far away to pick them up and toss them they just kept doing the harris hawk rebound thing where they would get up in the wind and fly again and again and again and we were running and i was trying to keep them in sight and they were so far away that it was really i was it was getting to the evening time and i was getting a little nervous about getting to them because there are coyotes around and stuff and uh and so one of the hawks, I probably remember this story because it was my hawk that caught it. Anyway, <laughs> my hawk catches a rabbit. Tom's hawk comes in and helps. And we're running because we can see him tumbling. And uh, and we finally get there. And, I mean, we're really out of breath. I can't even – I've just grabbed the hawks – I mean, the the, um, the jackrabbit's back legs. And we're, we're like a tent over the, with our game bags over the hawks. And suddenly we're, we're by the main road there. I mean, that's how far it had been. It was, what was that, like a... Yeah, oh, more than a half mile. On yeah, here. it, was, yeah, it yeah. was closer to, mm-hmm. yeah, anyway, mm-hmm. three quarters of a mile or something. Anyway, there's this truck that pulls up. It, was on, it wasn't on the main road. Mm-hmm. It was on a dirt road near it. But anyway, they're like, how did you all get here? Where is your truck? They're, they're, they're just like beyond, like there's no way that humans could have just magically appeared. <laughs> and, and they're just like... They're like, what are y'all doing? You know, they thought we were homeless people and then we were camping out there and that, that the, you know, our vests were the tents and stuff like that. And, and so then anyway, it was just really funny. They wanted to know if we needed a ride back to our trucks and then, you know, they couldn't see our truck. And they wanted to know how we were going to get back. And we're like, we're going to walk back. (laughs) But they were out there a couple of country bumpkins. They were hunting quail out the car window. Mm -hmm. Nice, huh? Mm -hmm. You should have been like, well, you know... uh, yeah, I we just kind of got stranded. We could use some money to get back to town. Right, exactly. yeah. Hitch a ride. Yeah. No, could no. have at least gotten your free dinner that night. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I mean, I I really feel like that if we really wanted to, we could probably spend the rest of the day just sitting here and oh yes, and talking could. about this stuff. But uh, 
But, you know, we're actually kind of almost at that uh, at that time cap, you know, where we usually try and, and like to keep these. So, um, yeah, as much as, uh, as, as I'm sure it would still be fun, you know, just, uh, you know, before too long, it'll be time where it's acceptable to start drinking anyway. You know, we, <laughs> we can just crack open a few and spend, you know, a few more hours doing this. But um, uh, we'll go – let's go ahead and end with um, just – what what do you guys think just uh you know since you guys have been doing this for so long now what would be you know the the one thing that you guys would like to impart before you know just uh, just a piece of advice or you know just a, a last thought you know to to anybody that's that's listening before we get off of here go ahead john yeah i think it really helps to see good falconry mm-hmm. for those the, those of you that are still having trouble struggling so my advice would be to go out with a falconer that really knows what they're doing and not just somebody that's a quote-unquote master falconer, just somebody who catches game and their hawks mm-hmm, are kept mm-hmm. in good condition, yeah. you know? Yeah, and I like to encourage just everybody to get out there and hunt. It's just, it's that simple. So many, so many birds we sell on every year, it's just the people promise to hunt and we, you know, we hope and then we end up, you know, a year later hearing the bird was handed me down to somebody else and they didn't hunt and uh, it's just, Get out there and hunt. It's amazing well, the fun you're going to have and the stories you're going to have to tell later in life. And it's just I encourage hunting, 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 you know, at all costs. And uh, and scout in your off yeah, season. Yeah. A scout. lot of people don't understand how to scout. Mm-hmm. And don't be ashamed to just ask people how to find yeah, a hunting spot, yeah. too, if, you, if you're not able to, you know. But that's... And, and try to handle failure. We were talking about failure last night. And, uh, you know, birds are going to die. Birds are going to get hurt. And you got to just get back on the horse and get another bird and just keep on trucking and don't let anything hold you back. It's but just learn a, from your mistakes. Yeah, learn at from the your same mistakes. Time. Don't let them happen <laughs> twice. Because <yeah. laughs> we're all going to make mistakes, but just don't let them happen twice. Yeah. yeah. Well, awesome. Now, this is a perfect time, I think, to go ahead and end then. And uh, yeah, I mean, thank you guys so much for taking the time and, uh, you know, once again, having me down here. It's been, it's been fun. And, uh, yeah, I mean, well, I'm, John, I'm, we really appreciate what yeah, you're doing. Yeah, it too. was a long drive. I know, appreciate it. No, I mean, like I said, I'm any any kind of time I can usually make to hang out with friends and in the midst of all this craziness <clears throat> and and kill as many quote unquote you know birds and no pun intended with uh, <laughs> with one stone. I'm always <laughs> I'm always happy to do it. So thank you again so much. And uh, yeah, let's go off and and do something else here in a bit. <laughs> Sounds good. Let's all do right. it. <laughs> We really hope that you guys enjoyed this 50th episode of the Falconry Told podcast, and thank you again very much to the Colsons for having me down and for the opportunity to be able to do it, and for also taking me out uh, a little bit on the on the town and showing me some of the the different stuff in downtown New Orleans. I'd actually never gotten a chance to go down there yet and experience some of that culture, so that was definitely very cool to to hang out and. Uh, you know, watch some street bands, have a few beers, uh, get some pizza down there afterwards. It was, uh, man, it was it was a good time. It was a good couple of days. So all that being said, before I leave you all here today, I'm actually going to turn things over to Israel. He had a few things he wanted to tell you guys. And uh, yeah, man, just uh, yeah, take care. And until next time, I'm going to leave you all with him and uh, peace out. Later on, everyone. Hey guys, it's Israel Matson jumping in here on John's episode to thank you all for all of your support. And thanks to John too. This guy is the reason we're here, constantly working to make episodes happen, and the reason we've made it to episode 50 and probably to our next goal of episode 100. Oh, and you guys as well, of course. None of this is possible without your support. 
To commemorate the 50th episode of the Falconry Tool podcast, I've commissioned the making of 50 replicas of King Frederick II's official coin. Minted by the Emperor upon taking the reins of the Holy Roman Empire, this one-of-a-kind memento heralds the impact King Frederick II has had on falconry and on so many guests we've had on this program. We all appreciate his tremendous contributions to the sport of falconry, and this stamped coin is really cool because he designed it in the traditional Roman style versus the contemporary designs of the time. We should have updates on when those will get in soon, so keep your eye on our social media and website for news of that. There will be only 50. They'd make a great keepsake, necklace, key fob, just a great all-around token to the continuing legacy of documented falconry. What Frederick was doing then, and what Falconry Told seeks to continue doing now. Thank you for your continued support and contributions. Enjoy.